good to be here. As Shannon mentioned, I'm one of the elders here, one of the newest elders. Brian and I were installed uh, together, vetted, uh, put before you as a vote, and then installed uh, last September, I believe it was, as an elder here in Redeemer Church, and it has been a joy. Had I known that COVID was coming, <laughs> I might have uh, been a little more hesitant, but no, it's been really good serving with the elders here at Redeemer and making decisions and processing things together. And like Shannon said, I've tried to get out of this a couple times. I went as far as to try to get Abby to go into labor a few weeks early so that I could be there. And not <laughs> but no, as Shannon said, the Lord has been working on my heart for, for a while uh, on this message that I want to preach to you. And so I'm excited, a little bit nervous, but as I was standing over here just now, I look out and I just see friends. And so I'm so glad to be here with you guys today and, and guests as well. I'm glad that you're here. Some of you have sat under my teaching, uh, whether it was in the life group that Shannon mentioned that we led uh, for a while, or um, I've gone through Galatians and also now Leviticus a couple months ago in Renew, so nine of you have heard me teach. <laughs> Come to Renew, guys. There's a lot of really great stuff happening there this morning. In fact, if you'd been there this morning, you would have had a great uh, lead-up to what I'm going to preach today, a great review of the Old Testament, and so it's really great things happening there. This summer, we're going to look at a healthy church, and so Brian does a great job at that, so please please come to that. But this morning, I wanted it to be an opportunity uh, for me to introduce myself to you, not just as the musical elder sitting on a box up here banging away or playing the piano, but also uh, as elder preacher. And so uh, what I want to do is preach the first thing first here. I want to preach the gospel. So let's do this. Let's go Hebrews 10. If you have your Bibles, turn there. Bring your Bibles to church, y'all. You won't know if I'm lying to you if you're not looking along and reading along with me. So let's go 10, and we'll start in verse 1. And, and I think the question that you need to ask of me first uh, as you evaluate me as, as preacher is, does he understand the gospel? Does he preach the gospel? Does he have that down? And if we do, if I do, maybe we can move on to some secondary or some tertiary things down the road. But for, for, for now, let's look at the gospel. So read with me. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said... Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, which were, these are offered according to the law. Verse 9, Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for saying, for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. 
Where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through the flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another in love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let me pray with me. Before we do that, let me ask you to pray for me this morning. I am not confident or comfortable in my own abilities to preach to you this morning. My first sermon ever. (laughs) So there's no telling what color red you're going to see in my cheeks today. And to be honest, I haven't caught my breath since I got up on the stage. So please pray for me. I know that the Lord has a message for you. And the only thing standing in the way of you hearing it is my lack of ability and my nerves. So, So pray for me as I open us in prayer. Heavenly God, we thank you for this church. I thank you for this time. I thank you for these men and women who have come to sit and to worship and to declare the gospel to one another through, through our songs, through our prayer, through the preaching of your word. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you deliver the message that's going to come out of my mouth, not from me, God, but from your word. May I decrease and you increase, God. Teach us what you have for us today. In Christ's name, amen. The title of my message this morning is The Gospel of Jesus. As I said, it doesn't get more basic than that, but there's so much here for us. So when I was growing up, uh, my mom worked for a short time in, in travel. She worked for a government entity booking travel and stuff, but so she had friends in the travel world, and occasionally she would take us to this travel office, uh, travel agency. We don't really have those anymore, so if you're under 30, you're like, Expedia? <laughs> Google? No, there were actually offices where you could go, and I remember it clearly. You'd go in, and there were walls and walls of brochures, and catalogs, and you could pick up one and say, Alps, let's go to the Alps, let's plan a trip to the Alps, or pick one up from Disney World or Disneyland, and you could look at all these brochures, and you could plan a trip based on the brochures and the catalogs that were there, and then the travel agent would book it all up for you, do all the hard work, all you had to do was tell them what you wanted, and then you would go. Uh, And so, if you were to do that, book this beautiful vacation, I don't know what it is for you, so you just, in your own mind, imagine what that perfect vacation is, I'm just going to say a 10-day trip to the Alps to do whatever, skiing or fishing or hiking, whatever, whatever's in the Alps. I don't even actually know. <laughs> you go, you book it, you get there, and on the second day, you think to yourself, man, I really, that travel office was something. That brochure was really sweet. I'm going to leave early, and I'm going to go back, and I'm going to go to that brochure, and I'm going to embrace that brochure because it was really something. That's nuts. Nobody's going to do that. You're going to go and you're going to rest and you're going to enjoy this vacation that you've planned and you've booked and you've paid for. And yet the author of Hebrews this morning is writing to a group of Jewish Christians, so people who grew up in the faith, they're Jewish, so under the law, have become believers, they're Christians, and are turning back to their old ways, the law. They've gone back to the brochure, the picture of what was to come, which is Christ. And so the warning this morning out of this book of Hebrews is to pursue wholeheartedly the true substance, which is Jesus Christ. To fully understand this, now the the original audience would have known this well, but for us we need to look back to the book of Exodus and Leviticus where God draws his people out of slavery from Egypt 
gives them the Ten Commandments. These are basic, basic rules for you to follow in order to be good enough for me to live with you, to dwell with you. And the way he does that is through the tabernacle. He gives very specific instructions on how to build it, the shape, the size, the curtain, where things go. And then in the book of Leviticus, he assigns priests and teaches them through Moses how to purify the people, how to make them clean through sacrifices. So we read just a minute ago, bulls and goats. They would sacrifice bulls and goats at, at the altar to atone for sins so that God could continue to dwell with his people. Nobody really knows who the author of Hebrews is. It could be Paul. I've heard a case for Apollos, uh, for Barnabas. One thing is clear, they, whoever it was, if it wasn't Paul, knew Paul very well because the writing style is very much like Paul. And so I, I'm actually leaning towards thinking Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, but it, that's neither here nor there. My first point this morning is this. Jesus is the final sacrifice. A lot of times we hear of the Old Testament and the New Testament being two different things, and the old is bad, the new is good. We all know the New Testament, we love the New Testament, we know what happens in the New Testament, and we look to the old and say, ah, it's bad. Some churches don't even teach the Old Testament anymore. Uh, I want to tell you this morning that that is a misunderstanding. The Old Testament is the Word of God. It is good. It's there to serve a purpose just as the brochure serves its purpose to inform how to plan the vacation. It's pointing to a greater reality, a newer reality, which we know now is Christ. The Old Testament prepares the way and reveals our need for the new. Jesus' sacrifice puts aside old practices, the tabernacle we've just talked about, and secures forgiveness. If you look at verse 1, it says, For since the law, which let me stop for a second, your Bible might say therefore instead of for, uh, it's saying that there's something has just happened. We've just come out of a different um, thing, and you need to know what happened. So I'll just explain it quickly. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 are extremely repetitive. If you go and read it, it's the same argument over and over and over. And so in verse 10, he's going back into iteration number 7. So everything that you're going to hear from here forward is just a restatement of what has just been said. So let's continue. For since the law has but a shadow, or the brochure, now that you have that image of your, in your mind, of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. So this idea of shadow, it's kind of like an outline, this, this sermon outline that I have here, or, or a resume that you give when you're trying to get a job of, a, of who you are. A resume is a picture of who you are, but it's not you. It's just a resume. So the law was a resume or a copy, a shadow of what is to come, which is Jesus, which we already know the answer to that. The difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, you may be asked this in conversation with family or friends. What is the difference? I mean, really, there, obviously there's a, there's a divide there. We refer to them separately. What is the difference? The difference is total redemption. The work was never finished in the tabernacle and in the temple, but when Christ came and was sacrificed once for all, he brought total redemption, no longer needing any of the past ritually ritual cleansings and, and constant work that was required under the law. The law could not forgive them of their sins, so God sends Jesus to be sacrificed on our behalf. Only the righteousness of Christ will suffice for our sins. Look at verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This would have been striking for the original audience to hear because grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, everybody since Abraham has done this. We've been told our whole lives that this is how it works. This is how we can draw near to God. And yet, when Christ comes and fulfills it, it says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away 
sin. It's kind of like a cancer patient that has been declared cancer-free, someone who I can relate to this personally with my mom, who's been through cancer multiple times. A lot of people in this room I know have been touched by cancer. We rejoice when they're declared cancer-free, and if the doctor is even brave enough and confident enough to use the word remission, we rejoice. But the book of Hebrews is saying it's like that person wanting to continue their chemo. It's not doing anything for you anymore, so stop. It makes no sense. So how do we apply this? Our conscience is not cleared by ritual. Our bodies tell us this through hunger, thirst, sickness. All serves to remind us that we're longing for a day when these things will be no more. Uh, I'm getting older. I'm not that old. <laughs> I know. A few weeks ago, I was, or months ago now, I was working with a, a I'm going to get in trouble here, but an older gentleman, <laughs> mid-70s, okay? So he really, I mean, I'm not talking about 40-year-old here. Mid-70s, and I... For some reason, the whole week we had been working together, and when I woke up in the morning, my right foot, or my big toe, just wouldn't work. I mean, it just it was sore, and it was stiff, and I'd try to walk normal, and it just, I don't know, it's just weird, but then it went away. And I made a comment to him about it. I was like, man, 30s are rough. <laughs> Mid-70s. <laughs> he laughed at me and laughed at me and laughed at me, much like he just did. Then he stopped and looked at me, and then he started laughing again, and he laughed some more. <laughs> And I haven't lived that one down. I think every time I see him, he brings that up. It's pretty funny. But he knows it too. His body knows it too. Just like my body knows that we're longing for a day when these things will be no more. When Jesus comes again, which he will, we will no longer have that. Our bodies cry out for something greater, just as the law cried out and continues to cry out and point to the finished work of Jesus. Jesus is the correct prescription. Stop settling for the shadow and... and Turn to the rest offered in Christ. Now you might say, I'm not tempted to sacrifice bulls and goats. That's not a problem for me. <laughs> Though some of you, if a bull was to die, you know where the filet is and you know where your grill is, and so you're going to take care of that. That's not what it's talking about here. Hebrews, in its application to us, is telling us that any pathway to forgiveness outside of the sacrifice of Jesus fails. And you may be tempted to trust in your own works and good behavior in order to make God happy with you. Anyone? I'm preaching to myself this morning, too. <laughs> Works-based salvation is a dead end. Just as the law could not provide total forgiveness of sin, so the travel brochure cannot provide the experience of the vacation. It is just pointing to it. Now in verses 5 through 8, we'll look at here in just a second. The author is going to continue painting a picture for us. Uh, for our need, or of our need, for a greater sacrifice. Beginning in verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, now you might see a, a shift in the, the, the typing, the type of font here in your Bible. It's because he's quoting something. He's quoting the Old Testament. This comes out of Psalm 40. He says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Now, based on what we just know, that's, again, striking to this audience because their whole lives they've been told, sacrifice bulls, sacrifice goats, bring me your grain offering, do this, honor the day of Yom Kippur where we account for all of the sins that didn't get covered during the year. And here he's saying, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. What's going on here? Let's keep reading. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, which were offered according to the law. 
Then he added in verse 9, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And that brings me to my second point this morning, which is Jesus is the creator and sustainer of our faith. So God is like this epic, cosmic movie producer or this playwright who's writing these plays and these, the, the term I like the best for is word pictures for us to see him, to reveal himself to us in all these different ways. And there's all these different layers to us. We see Jesus use the same thing in his, uh, his illustrations when he's teaching the people. He uses parables, word pictures. And so God is this epic playwright that's writing a story for you and I that we play a part in. And he's trying to teach his people here that religious ritual without change of heart does not avail before God. He gave the people the Ten Commandments, as I said before, just before he gave them the, the tabernacle and the sacrifices as rules to live by, right and wrong, so his people would know, and so that he could be with them. And they're simple rules, right? We teach these to our kids. Don't lie, don't steal, don't covet other things. And Jesus takes a step further and says, if you have had rage towards another person, if you have hated a person, then you are guilty of murder within the Ten Commandments. And so nobody can keep these. We know that we can't. You know, my, my kids will hit each other or kick each other when they're angry. They didn't learn that from me. That's their sin nature. I'm not going around kicking people and hitting people when I don't get my way. But what it also teaches us is that even if you have kept them well, the Scripture tells us that the law made nothing perfect. So even if you could keep the law, it would not set you free. It's kind of like an alcoholic who has been sober for six months, one year, who's been sober for 15 years, and every fiber in his or her body wants a drink. They're not free, are they? And so it is with the law. It did not set us free. It did not clear our conscience. It left us with a guilty heart. It atoned temporarily for sin so that the people could be with God, so he could dwell with them. Verse 9, which we just read, is the validation. It says, let's look at it again. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. So there's this idea of obedience to something still. Talking about freedom and freedom from the law and freedom from the brochure, and yet Jesus, even in his picture to us, shows that there is obedience to something. And so I think what he's trying to teach us is that faith and obedience is glorifying to God. And this sacrifice is a word picture, an epic movie about God's hatred for sin and our need for atonement. This is supposed to point us to our need. If we didn't have the Old Testament, if we didn't have the Old Covenant, if we didn't study it, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't know that we needed Christ. Jesus did not obey the Father under duress either. The angels sang at his incarnation of the joy that was set before him. And if you were to flip forward a couple more pages here to Hebrews 12, 2, it says, For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the wrath of God joyfully. Why? That makes no sense to us. He came to die, yet he did it joyfully for the joy that was set before him. And I believe it's because Jesus found unending joy in obeying the Father. Because the Father is worthy and the source of all joy. The coming joy of what Jesus would accomplish, disarmed of its sting, the present pain. Let me read that again. The coming joy, disarmed of its sting, the present pain. So how determined are we to obey the Father? Do we consider it a joy or a burden? I would encourage you to look to the big picture of the substance rather than the present brochure, or as Hebrews calls it, the shadow of life. My third point is this. There is no rest in the shadow. Look at verse 10 and 11 with me. 
Verse 10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So there's this idea here, not this idea, this is just fact. (laughs) They're standing at their service. There are no chairs in the tabernacle. If you were to flip through and look at the maps in your Bible, you would see the layout, you'd see the blueprints, you'd see what it looked like, you'd see where the curtain is, you'd see where the Ark of the Covenant was, and you won't see chairs. And it was symbolic of work being uh, finished, work being completed, specifically if you were a priest, because it was symbolic of work being finished, as I just said. So, Here's how it usually plays out in my life and probably in yours. When you didn't pray well this week or you didn't read your Bible well this week, and by well, I mean you didn't. (laughs) Just me? (laughs) You don't try to clean yourself up and earn God's favor. You don't say, okay, next week I'll read double or tomorrow I'll set my alarm 15 minutes earlier so I can pray a little bit more. We don't work to earn God's favor. There is nothing you can do to earn God his favor. It's already been done for you. But that's not the case here in verse 10 and 11. It says their work was never complete. They could never sit down because it was always happening. So men and women, when this was coming over their hearts, over their conscience, over their minds, I have sinned, I have not done well this week, they would come to the temple. They'd come to the tabernacle. The priest would weigh what they've done against the law, say, you have sinned, kill a goat, kill a bull. Okay, now go and sin no more, which is really helpful. (laughs) But you can see that doesn't do anything for the heart. That doesn't do anything for the conscience, and this was constant, round-the-clock work for the priests, which were the descendants of the line of Aaron. Go read the book of Leviticus, and this will all make so much more sense, sense to you. No matter how many offerings they brought in, it could never have the guilt, shame, fear, depression, and overwhelming sense of emptiness removed from them, because God was not after goats and bulls. He was after their hearts, and so he is today with yours. If you'll notice real quickly in verse 11 and verse 12, there's some contrast here where it says the priest offered continually, stands daily, repeatedly, blah, 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 blah. And then verse 12 comes in Christ. But when Christ had offered for, what are the next two words? All time. A single sacrifice for sins. A single sacrifice. Not a continual, not a repeated. There's contrast here. And then in verse 14, it fulfills the question that's asked in verse 1. It says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for, here's those two words again, all time, those who are being sanctified. So how many of your sins were future sins when Jesus died on the cross? Yeah, all of them. (laughs) That was a long time ago. None of you have lived that long. All of them. This is saying that Jesus' sacrifice covered skins past, present, and future. All of them. And then, look at the next verse. What is he doing? Waiting for a time until the enemy should come and be made foot for his feet, footstool for his feet. That will happen. Verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, and here he quotes Jeremiah. And then Jesus sits down, which we just learned was symbolic of work being finished. It's done, he says. It's over. There's no more work to be done here. Most of us have been taught the tabernacle and are still trying to bring him offerings to abuse him because of our failures. God is sacrificed, 
or satisfied with the sacrifice, and God honors Christ with the seat at his right hand to show how fully satisfied he is with the debt paid for sin. So how do we apply this? We apply this by saying Jesus is not taking offerings anymore. Verses 17 and 18. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's paid for. There's nothing in you that's of any value to God. You have nothing that he needs, nothing that you can offer, nothing you can bring to his table. He's saying the altar's closed. The tabernacle is done. We're not taking your offerings anymore. No more offerings. Now, don't get confused. We have a box right back there for your offerings. There's a great online option. You can either put it uh, in a credit card form or ACH transfer. We are still, so don't, don't get that confused. We're not sacrificing bulls and goats. That's done. Listen, your sin had to be punished, so God killed you in his son. And now when he sees you, he sees his son. Perfect, spotless, radiant. And in Christ, if you're a believer this morning, if you're in Christ, God the Father can never love you more than he loves you right now. Regardless of the sins that you've committed and not asked for forgiveness, regardless of the sins you're committing now, regardless of the sins that you'll commit tomorrow, he will never love you more right now in Christ because when he looks at you, he sees the work of his son that was done one time for all time. It's done. Thank you. Thank you for that amen. <laughs> like I said, I'm preaching to myself here as well. This is good for my heart. So when you're looking at a brochure, it's easy to imagine yourself in the tube going down the river or casting a fly into the stream or riding Splash Mountain or whatever the newest Star Wars ride is at Disney. But consider taking a step towards the real thing. Leave the brochure behind and embrace the fullness of Christ this morning. A fourth point, don't settle for the shadow. Verses 19 through 25, we'll look at those in just a minute. So what does it look like to respond to the gospel? We have this confidence now uh, so that we can boldly approach the throne. We don't have to approach timidly because it's already been done. We have confidence. Let's look at that. Let's, let's look at 19 through 23. My, my Bible even has a heading here. It says uh, the full assurance of faith for this next passage. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Isn't that good news? If you're a believer in here, that's really good news. That's great news. You have confidence in this. It's freely given to you. If you're not a believer, or you think you're a believer, and yet your view is, I do things to gain God's favor, let me submit to you this morning that you don't understand the gospel. There's nothing that you do to earn God's favor. Most of you know my kids. You know Micah and Elsie. You've, you've seen them come in here usually on Sunday mornings, and they're, they're usually right behind me or right behind Abby, real shy, real timid, and just real chill. That's normal for them. Most of the time, they get a little carried away at home, but if you talk to Micah, this is funny. He doesn't do this as much anymore, but he used to have this response like if someone talks to him, even when he's shy, he would just kind of, <laughs> his tongue would come out a little bit and look at the sky. He's just, 
he'll warm up, and he's a chatterbox. If you get to know our kids, you'll know we've, get, we've got a talker and we've got a hitter. And <laughs> it's not what you think. <laughs> it's actually the other way around. Uh, but anyway, uh, most of you know that Elsie, too, has her whole life dealt with some infections uh, in her kidneys that we've had to deal with uh, just recently. She hasn't had one for years, and all of a sudden they came back, and it's been a stressful month or so. And so we know, I mean, we were just out front. The kids were playing in the street. I was with them. We don't just let our kids play in the street. <laughs> we were playing in the street. They were running around having a great time. Elsie just walks in the house. Uh, okay, whatever. I guess she's done. So Mike and I pick up all the toys. We head in, and not 30 minutes later, she's laid on the couch, 104.9 temperature. Like, oh, all the parents in the room, your blood pressure just went up because you know that's got to do something about that. So immediately we're getting the Tylenol in. We know what to do. Go to the hospital, get her to her, her specialist. We go to Children's in Dallas, uh, get her to the ER so that they can take a culture and they can get her the right medicine. We've been here. We've done it. We're getting better. We're catching them faster, which is good, but it's still no fun for her, no fun for us. And she's such a sweetie, but when it comes to taking medicine, it can be, it can be a little interesting. It can be exciting, you know. And I knew that with a high fever could come an altered mental state. But, man, I did not expect the supreme commander to come out of my little girl. I mean, it's like, turn off that light. You get me a Gatorade. Daddy, sit on the floor and hold me. Well, I mean, Daddy be more comfortable on the chair or maybe on the side of the bed holding Get on the floor. <laughs> like, yes, ma'am. Glad to do it. Glad to do it. Because it's my sweet little girl. It's my princess, right? Now, after vomiting medicine, kicking medicine, hitting me, pulling hair, we get the medicine in her. She's doing much better. But here's what we don't do. Here's what Abby and I do not do. We do not back off and say, clean yourself up. Get yourself together. Be respectful to your brother. Obey us. Take your medicine and then give it to her. No, we don't do that. We do whatever it takes. We get as messy as we need to. We take the hits that we need to get the medicine in her because the infection is raging in her kidneys and we know that the only way she's going to get better is if she takes her medicine. But how many of us come in here walking through life, thinking, I can clean myself up. I'll come to Christ when I can get this sin over here taken care of. Nobody knows about it, but I know about it. Oh yeah, God knows about it too, probably. I'm going to take care of that, and then maybe he'll be pleased with me. That's ridiculous. Have you not heard what we've read this morning? It's done for all time. He can never love you more than he loves you right now if you are in Christ. That is great, great news if the Spirit of God will let you hear it. You keep coming and making the same sacrifices every week with no real change. How many people are here are longing and frustrated because you were created for the real thing but have instead settled for the shadow? Listen, we don't earn right standing with God through good works. Rather, it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us, leads us to repentance. Once you understand your place in the story, the grand arc of Scripture, of all things, of all creation, when you understand your place you understand how kind it is of the Lord to give you what he's given you. You don't work for it, but you respond in kind. So how does this work? What is the key to all this? What is the gospel? I told you I wanted to preach the gospel this morning, so what is it? Christians, don't check out. Paul says in his epistles, it is no trouble for me to teach these things to you again. Why? Because the gospel is for Christians. It is not just a means of salvation, though it is the power of God unto salvation, the gospel is for you and for me. We need to hear the gospel. We do it every week. The songs that we sing that Brian chooses and leads up here, 
is a way for us to sing together corporately to declare the gospel to one another. When we pray together, we're declaring the gospel to one another, so don't check out. So what is it? Let me start it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 1. John is trying to show us here that Jesus didn't just enter the story 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, whatever, how many years later into the grand story. God, Jesus himself, was, was God at the beginning. He is creator, along with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three, the one true God, created all things perfect, good, first let there be light, let there be water, let there be land. And at the pinnacle of his creation is man and woman created in his likeness, made in his image. But quickly, through the temptation of Satan, the snake, to Adam and Eve, sin enters the picture. He offers them the knowledge to choose their way, to choose what they think is right. And they choose their way over God. They chose their comfort when they hid to not be seen naked. They chose their control over God's good design for them, for us, and for his creation. And all of us to this day have done the same thing. We have chosen, we have belittled God and his good, perfect creation and design for all things by choosing our own comfort, by choosing our own control, and going our own way. We're all guilty of this. So God responds by creating hell. Because if God is good and just, if he is just, he won't spare wrath. He can't because he is just, he is good. So he creates hell, which is not just death. It is separation from him. It is eternal torment, lacking of all things good, all things light, all things true. I don't know that there's a way to describe how awful that may be. But here's the thing about hell. It doesn't produce what God is ultimately after. He's after worshipers. And so he accomplishes our salvation by sending his son. And I love this, another word picture. Uh, we, you have Abraham, right, way back in the Old Testament, and God tells him to take his son up on the mountain and sacrifice him and kill him. I love this story, and I hate this story, because I just, that just eats me up when I hear that. And to think that he obeyed, praise God that he did, but man, I don't think I could have done that. In this word picture, you see, you see Abraham bringing the knife down to kill his son. I hate that. That's so awful. But at the last minute, an angel stops him. One of the best lines in that word picture is this. God will provide the sacrifice, Abraham says to his son. And so he did all those years later in the sending of his son to be born of a virgin, live a sinless life, nailed to a cross. And this time, there was no angel to stop the hand of God. He killed his son on the cross for your sin and for mine as the last sacrifice for all sin, all time. This is the gospel, that you and I have right standing with God through no works of our own, through no effort of our own, through no, no works. I don't even know how to describe it better than that. But through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and it's available to all of you today. This is good news. This is the gospel. Look at verse 19 with me. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. There it is right there. There's the gospel. You hear something like this every week here in Shannon's sermons. You hear shadows of the gospel every week. You hear brochures of the gospel and everything that we do. This is the gospel. Have confidence. Enter the rest that's available to you in this. But how do we, how do, we do that, right? Because I could just end the sermon here because that's great. That's great news. The gospel, woo! <laughs> Let's go. 
So let's, let's do this. Let's take it back to the, the very first illustration. Travel agency, travel agent, Expedia, whatever you use. You could do all the work yourself. You could book your flight six weeks in advance on Tuesday at 3 p.m. because that's when the cheapest tickets are. Or instead of doing all the work, all the planning, all the organizing, all the arranging yourself, you could accept that the travel agent has done it for you and all you have to do is show up and rest. Can I get an amen? I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> so we show up and rest, but what does that look like? Really? I mean, come on. Okay, so we just go to church. Is that what it is? We just live good lives? Is that what it is? Listen, we love Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. If you've got your Bible, turn there with me. I'm going to read there. Let's look at it. Ephesians 2. We love 8 and 9. It's on coffee cups. It's on tattoos. It's, it's everywhere. But we can't forget 10, so let's read those together. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 8. I'll wait till you're there. We there? Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Amen. And this is not of your doing. Amen. It is the gift of God. Praise God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. That's great news. That's the gospel. But verse 10. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Amen. Amen. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, Matt, you've just spent the last 40 minutes, I think, I don't know. I don't know how to read that timer back there. Telling us that your works mean nothing. Telling us that our effort means nothing. That we can't earn anything. That we can't buy anything. So, but now, you're telling us that our works matter? Ephesians tells us that our works matter? What does that mean? What does that look like? When you become a Christian, there should be fruit. There should be growth. There should be evidence of your salvation. In the book of James, he kind of touches on this a little bit. He's not saying, let me put it this way. If you're saying you're a Christian, you are putting out there, I'm a believer, and James says, and yet there's no works, there's no fruit, there's no evidence of obedience, then you've labeled yourself incorrectly. He's asking you to relabel yourself unbeliever. Because a true Christian is marked by these things. Just like I said before, we don't earn right standing with God through good works. Rather, it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. When a true believer hears what the Lord has done for him, understanding that we are deserving of nothing but death, and yet he gives us the free gift of his son, killed. He killed you in his son. That's great, great news. And it's his kindness in doing that for us that leads us to repentance, that leads us to the next step, that leads us to obedience. As I alluded to before, the obedience to the Father brings joy. There's fullness of life. Has any, everyone, anyone here ever felt full, like maybe when you're, you're a kid, this is how I've seen it most recently, uh, tells you they love you or they thank you for all the things you've done and you just, you just feel full or, or it could be anything. You just feel full, fullness of life. There is fullness of life available to you in your obedience to God and his scripture. It's his design for us. So how do, we, how do we do that here? How does that play itself out? Well, you come to church. Okay, what does that mean? Coming to church doesn't mean showing up three, four, five Sundays a year. All right. We have life groups. Let me just talk about life groups for a second here. A pastor can effectively care for 15, 20 people at the most. Okay, so we have two full-time pastors here, Brian and Shannon, so we're looking at max 40 people are effectively being cared for pastorally there. We've got three lay elders. We have full-time jobs and careers and families of our own, so maybe cut that in half. 
do the math, we're maybe able to effectively care for 60 or 70 of you. Okay, so what about the other 60 of you regular tenders? We're seeing well over 100. The Lord is faithfully bringing people, visitors to us every week. Praise God for that. How do we care for you? The first place you're going to be prayed for is your life group. The first people who are going to know that you need a meal because you've had a rough day or a loved one has passed is your life group. The first place you're going to have an opportunity to serve other people who are hurting or serve and rejoice with people who have had good news is your life group. Now we, the elders, we want to come visit you in the hospital. We want to come pray with you. We want to care for you. But just because of the math, the numbers, we're not going to be more than likely the first people to be that for you. So I'm telling you this morning, if you're opting out of a life group, you're effectively opting out of pastoral care. So get in a life group. This is a great place. Say, I'll deal with the messiness because we know sometimes it can be. I'm going to make friends there and we're going to do life together. This is a good thing. Renew. The nine of you that come on the other side of this wall on Sunday mornings are learning a lot. We've gone through scripture, an overview of scripture up to this point. This was the last Sunday and now through the summer it's going to be, Brian does a great job of leading us through what a healthy church looks like. So that could be some answers to some of your questions. What does a healthy church look like? Come and learn. We have men's ministry, women's ministry. Shannon announced earlier that Wednesday nights there's going to be more programming available to you, so come and learn. Be poured into. Listen, we need each other. That's how God designed this to work, and that's in verse 24 and 25. We're back in Hebrews 10. Look at me. Verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. You've probably heard this illustration before. I've heard it before in making the argument that you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. So the illustration is, standing in a garage makes me a car just as much as going to church makes me a Christian. Well, okay, that might be true. You know, first thing that comes to mind is maybe a missionary way out in rural Africa or rural Asia or somewhere where there are no other believers, there is no existing church, but they're there serving God faithfully. They're safe, surely, yes, okay. But why would you stand out in the blazing hot Texas sun when the storm comes and the hail comes, pound you and beat you down, when the wind blows, the rain comes, the storm passes through, why would you not want the life-preserving shelter that is offered by the garage? The people at church that we do life with are the people that are going to rejoice with you. Because of our identity in Christ, we get to rejoice with one another, hold each other up when times get tough, care for each other. The Bible tells us that our brothers and sisters in Christ are oftentimes closer family members to us than our blood family. You know that? This is your family. So be here. Be a part of it. Not so that you can be served, but so that you can serve them. There's a mark of maturity that happens when your mindset as a believer shifts from how can my church serve me to what can I do to serve my church? That's the next step right there. You can make that decision. You can say, I'm going to make that step of maturity this morning. I'm going to shift my mindset to how I can serve the church. And the last thing that you can do, and we'll be done here, is discipleship. It's so important to be discipled and to disciple others. So if you are a Christian in here, you ought to have, it's good for you to have someone pouring into you, someone investing in you, someone who you can go to for advice, bounce ideas off of, visit with about ideas. It doesn't have to be someone that's older than you, but it should be someone that's been a Christian longer than you. And if you have been a Christian for, I'm just going to say six months or a year, if you've been a Christian for that long, 
you should also have someone that you're pouring into, that you're teaching. You wouldn't believe how much you will learn when you begin to teach. I learned it as a pilot. I went to school. Uh, the first year, I got my private pilot's license. Went home over Christmas break and rented an airplane, took my whole family flying, and it was a great time. Went back to school the next year, got my next rating, my instrument rating. And I remember thinking, I was like, man, I didn't know nothing. I, that was probably not safe <laughs> to take my whole family flying. I was really green. <laughs> and the next year, I became a commercial pilot, built some hours, and I was like, wow, wow, I learned a lot more. I really didn't know as much as I thought I knew. Another year goes by, I become a flight instructor, and then a, an instrument flight instructor. The university hires me to now teach students that are coming in as freshmen. And as I began to teach, I realized how much I didn't know or I didn't understand. And to this day, I tell people, 90% of what I know as a pilot, 90% of what I know about aviation was learned when I started to teach it. You can take your level of learning to a whole other level of correlation and application when you start to teach, when it starts coming out of you. So find someone to teach. Find someone to share the gospel with. Find somebody that you can give advice to. It's probably going to be somebody in your life group. But if you're not in one, maybe not. It might be a little bit harder for you to find those people. So find someone to pour into you, and you find someone to pour into. Do not settle for the shadow. Do not settle for the brochure. Pursue wholeheartedly the substance, which is Christ. If you're a believer this morning, or you thought you were a believer until you've heard these things this morning, or if you're not a believer this morning, or maybe you're on the stream and you're thinking, this is a chance. The Lord might be working on your heart this morning. Don't let that go by. If he's doing something in you this morning, come and talk to me. Come and talk to Shannon. Come and talk to Brian or one of the elders. Or if, if a 30-something with a receding hairline scares you, go talk to my wife or go talk to, to somebody else. We want to know what you're feeling, what you're thinking, what the Lord is doing in your heart. We want to rejoice with you. We want to see you plugged in and serving and doing this thing we call life together. And that's all I have for us this morning, so let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for the law. I thank you so much for giving us clear pictures, clear, a clear playwright of what we deserve. I thank you, God, for your kindness in sending your own son, Jesus, to die for our sins, to make one final atonement so that we can be made right with you. I thank you, God, that you love me more now than you ever will because of what your son has done. I thank you for his blood and covering my sin, and I pray for the, the hearts, the souls, and the ears of the people this morning who have heard this message. Holy Spirit, would you convict and drive down to the deepest levels the truth that is the gospel. I pray that hearts would be rejuvenated this morning after hearing this, and I pray that hearts that have never been awakened to you would spring forth even now, God. As we enter a time of worship, would you Help us to respond to this message, to digest this message, and to draw near to you, not to the brochure, not to the shadow, but to the substance, which is Jesus Christ, your Son. We love you, God, and it's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen.